Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson. And I'm Joe Lalo. And today we're going to be talking about some of the common mistakes that newer authors make. We know because we made a lot of them ourselves, and we may even still be making some of them. No promises. <laughs> Hopefully you'll find something helpful in here, though, uh, especially if you're struggling with a few things now or maybe not selling as many books as you wish you were. Maybe we'll have some th- something helpful. Uh, before we jump into the topic, would you guys, do you guys have any news that you would like to share? Uh, sure. Look, just fairly short, basic stuff this time. I, uh, I finished Epic Fantasy 2, as I was hoping that I would. It is off to the editor. Uh, I have pretty much prepped the, uh, the release for Epic Fantasy 1, so I just need to pick a date, and then that'll be up for pre-order. It'll probably be a standard thing with short pre-order. Um, but I do have to figure out a little bit more of a, of, of a, a promotional push for this one, since it's the first in a new series, and I kind of want to get it off on the right foot. So I'll be planning that this week and then um other than that i am going to be producing a whole lot of short stories for my patreon so that i can have you know six to eight months of stuff stored up uh and i just sort of have to set it and forget it i could even schedule all that stuff and sort of forget i have a patreon for a while but that's about it i'm, I'm finally scrambling to get back on track to what i should have done four to five months ago That's my turn now, right? (laughs) Um, Okay, yeah, lots going on right now in my personal life because we're moving and all that. But I've been making a pointed effort to do book stuff every day and having my nanny helps. She's so fantastic. She's like going to be becoming a good friend. So we're really glad that she's came and just like member of the family anyway. So I'm still making really good progress on the revisions for the second book of my series. And um hoping that that will be released here soon. The problem with it was I wrote it while we were going to Hawaii. And then also while I was in vocal break, you know, vocal was the word. And so it's half dictated and half typed and it's all interspersed throughout when I needed a break from dictating and trying to piece that thing together has been, yeah. So it's taking longer to revise. Plus it's a a genre I don't usually write in. So anyway, but it's coming along very nicely. I'm very pleased with it so far. So yep, that's it for me. Is your nanny going to be moving with you? Are you like staying in the same city? Is it just kind of getting Yeah, we're place? moving okay. a quarter mile away and yeah, she'll be coming with us. So awesome. <laughs> you, got a, you got a good system. You got to keep that going there. I was watching some YouTube videos with guys that are like million channel views and they have like live-in video editors. So I was like, well, I'm not sure I would imagine inviting my book editor to uh, live. I don't have a basement, but if I had a basement, it seems a little weird. Those guys are more outgoing than we are. Um, yeah, but Joe, every time you say, I have to write six to eight short stories for Patreon, I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounds like so much work. Meanwhile, I'm about to complain about the length of the epic fantasy I'm working on. So I guess it's whatever uh, you were used to as far as what seems like a lot of work to you and not. Uh, for my news, I guess I'm getting close to finishing the rough draft of the third book in my epic fantasy series. And um, I'd hope to get this one closer to 150,000 words than 200,000 words. I just uh, had to go over the edits from uh, book two and it ended up at 193,000 words, but I think this is going to end up being at least 175. So a little shorter, but not that much. I am uh, super looking forward to my light and fun summer project that I have 
planned. Well, my, my parents are coming up to visit, so I wanted to have time to uh, hang out with them after over a year, actually two years since uh, we all visited because of the COVID stuff. So we will see. I, I'm looking forward to something that's like 60,000, 70,000 words if I can actually do it. So that would be a good challenge. All right. So our topic today, mistakes that newer authors make. And I think we each have three things and we'll just kind of share our thoughts and then chime in on each other's thoughts as we often do. So I'm going first. So the first one here, and I actually am lucky I didn't really make this one because there were no podcasts or anything at the time. There was basically nothing if you were self-publishing. But worrying too much about the marketing, the launch plans, building a platform, or advanced release techniques such as rapid release before you have finished writing your first book. Um, you know, we, we really appreciate all of our listeners, no matter where you are in your journey, but I'm always kind of amazed at how many people are coming to the conferences and stuff, the conventions and, and come up and say, you know, that they listen to this show or they listen to our old one that was specifically marketing focused, even though they haven't finished their first book yet. And, um, I know it's all super exciting, especially early on before your hopes and hopes and dreams have kind of gotten crushed or dashed or brought back to reality. Cause I, I told you guys my first story, I knew that was going to be bestsellers to make tons of money and I was going to live forever off it. So if you had that feeling, you're not alone. Um, but the problem is, you know, I mean, it's not necessarily a problem. It's really just depending on who you are, but it's easy to get yourself kind of flustered and a little confused by worrying too much about all the things you're going to have to do when you market and, you know, sell the book and maybe trying to incorporate too many things you hear about other people talking about as far as what works with tropes and genres and marketing and what's trendy and what's not. If you're trying to incorporate that too much into your first project, you may not be writing as good of a story as if you were just kind of writing something authentic and from your heart and not worrying about all that stuff yet. Uh, you can also kind of get false expectations from hearing, you know, all the success stories of people that are, because it's always the people that are being successful that share, <laughs> you know, like, hey, we're doing a podcast as six-figure authors, right? There's probably not as many people. I mean, I'm sure there are podcasts from all different levels, but like, there's that sort of survivor bias kind of thing where a, a lot of the people who succeed are the ones you hear about and you can possibly have false expectations. Not to say you're not going to succeed right off the bat, but most of us do not. So my recommendation would be at least get the book written and off to your editor before transitioning to really thinking about the marketing stuff. Um, if anything, I would say it's a good time to be listening to sort of the craft podcast and things that will help you stay motivated in the writing process and, and maybe get some tips and really focus on just writing a good book and, and finishing it first. And then when you're moving on, uh, you know, then it, once you have a book ready to sell, then you want to learn everything you can so you can package it up and give it as much of a good shot as you can get. All right. Do you guys have thoughts on that? I do. I have lots of thoughts on that. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but I, my, the biggest thing that just hit me while you were talking is it's kind of, I mean, this is where I am right now. You know, I've got this new series that I'm working on and it's a new pen name and different genre. And it's really, really hard not to worry about the marketing. I'm like, I'm basically a brand new author in this genre to readers, you know? And so I'm like, okay, so one book, it's not worth pushing. It's not worth stressing over, not worth fighting over, you know, worrying over marketing and everything when there's so many other things that I need to be doing, including writing. And so it's just, it's tempting not to push harder, but honestly, it's more important to get that first book finished and then to start working on the second book. Because even if you do sell that first book, there's not going to be anything else for them to go to. And the chance of them sticking around are really slim. Yeah. Um, uh, especially cause writing is, um, like 
if you want to make a career out of this, obviously, you know, the goal is to understand all the marketing and all that stuff like that. But you, with the exception of potentially checking to see what kind of market you're potentially targeting with your first book. And even that I wouldn't necessarily recommend because you want your first book to be the smoothest writing experience you can. Um, you need to find out if you're even, you've even got what it takes to be a professional author. I don't mean whether you can produce the quality. I mean, whether or not you enjoy writing enough and you feel as though you can put out enough, you know, good enough quality to continue doing that as a job. So if you, it's really putting the cart before the horse. If you haven't even finished your first book and you're trying to figure out how to do all of the other nuts and bolts, this is the part that you'll be building the rest of your career on. You should make sure you've got it down before you start building on the rest of that stuff. It's really easy to get daunted too when you start thinking about how much there is to do. I think, you know, Andrea doing a pen name, like you can't unknow what you know at the point when you decide to do your second series or do a pen name. But yeah, I, I, I've said this before on other podcasts, but I feel like the ones where I've tried harder to like make it closer to what seems to sell for other people, those series have never done as well for me as the ones where I just like, I'm writing the story I want to write and hopefully people will enjoy it. But I mean, I can't promise that everybody will have the same experience, but that's certainly been my experience. So hopefully that would be for you with the pen name also. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm going to go ahead and go on with my, my first thingy here. <laughs> Very professional. My first thingy. Okay. So not focusing on getting reviews and building a newsletter list while writing the next book in the series. And I'm not talking like major focus. I'm just saying having the groundwork done. So the first thing I've done every time I've finished a book in a new genre or, and I've done that multiple times now under three different pen names is write a reader magnet that goes along with the series. So what I do is I write the first book and then I write a reader magnet that ties in with that series. And I do this before releasing the first book. Um, if you're not doing that, then you're missing out on a lot, a lot of really simple and very easy advertising. Cause you will get downloads. It's not going to be a lot. You'll probably get a download here or there every day. Um, maybe not even that many, but maybe one or two a week, but the, you want to have things set in place so that when you do release that book, you can be capturing that traffic. Um, anyway, it takes a bit to get things set up in the beginning, but once they are in place, you don't have to tweak them again. And so I'm like, just, just folks, just do it now. Just find a way to, um, get that reader magnet to readers, whether it be in an automation sequence or your welcome email or whatever, and just get that all set up with your reader magnet in place and everything in a newsletter set up. Um, but the reader magnet should be mentioned in your bio on Amazon at the start and end, end of your first book and sub uh, subsequent ones and on your website and social media platforms. And it, like I said, it's one of the best and easiest ways to get subscribers and reviews because once you've got once you've got a lot of reviews on that first book, you can push it and promote it and get a lot of subscribers from that. Um, and then you get subscribers it's kind of like chicken before the egg, you know, you get subscribers and that leads to more reviews down the road. And so it just, you got to start the ball rolling somewhere. Um, so when you're first starting out, but it takes time, it, it does take time to get things going, but it also takes time to time to get your next book written. So get that thing, all that set up in the beginning. And then while you're writing your second book, then, you know, you can be capturing the traffic that's interested in sticking around. And by focusing on passively building your newsletter list, you'll be putting control over how many reviews you get on launch day for later books in your hands, instead of in random hands and reviews, they do make a huge, huge difference in the success of a new book. Um, and I just want to emphasize this. Your first book is going to move at a glacial pace. I'm, I'm an established author and my first book in a new series is a new author, new genre has moved at a glacial pace. It's doing better than some of my other books did when I first started out, but it's still moving very slowly. And that is hundred million times percent. Okay. 
Um, because as we've said on this, ep- this podcast, our goal isn't to write for the next six months. Our goal is to be authors for a long time. So just go at a, a pace you can, you know, you can maintain, uh, get your reader magnet ready as soon as you can, and then focus on writing more books. Um, once you have a few books in your series, then you can really focus on building your newsletter list and getting reviews and selling your books. Okay. So I have a question for you because I think some people are listening. I actually, I'm, I have this question for you too. What do you mean by reader magnet in this context? Um, do you mean something you're going to put out and have free in the stores or you're trying to like build a newsletter, do a whole bunch of mailing list swaps with other authors or um, the bonus for people who read the book and then you want to get them on your newsletter? Okay. So reader magnet to me is something that you give out to people to get on your newsletter list. And a lot of people say you can have it everywhere, but I mean, we've said before, the best way to get people on your newsletter list is not to sell your reader magnet is to offer it only in your newsletter list. And I mean, you can do swaps with other authors. That's fine. But I don't generally, I mean, I very rarely offer my reader magnet to people who do newsletter swaps. I do newsletter swaps with, I mostly just use that as incentive for people who've current, who've actually read my books to join my newsletter list. So it's a good way to get organic readers who actually care, you know, stick around. Okay. Yeah. I think I, I mean, I agree with you. I just want to clarify. Cause I think people might be like, well, you know, especially if they haven't listened to every episode and like, I would actually recommend th- yeah, you're totally right with like the best time to do the bonus material kind of stuff is while it's still all in your head, you just wrote the first book, but you could have one that's like something for people who just read the book to get them onto your list. Uh, you know, like prequel, we've talked about this before, novella, bonus short story, P- extra POVs from the guy who never got a POV in the book. And then you could also do a, like a short novella or something that you're just going to throw out there for free everywhere because you only have one book at this point. So you're not going to make your first book free. Um, and that could go up in the stores and just be free. And then at the end of that, you could say, Hey, if you like this, check out book one in the series. So yeah. So I was just thinking as a new author, it might be hard to like, just get people to sign up for the mailing list to get the free thing without any experience knowing you. They don't care. They don't know yet if they want your free thing until they've read something else by you. Sorry, Joe. I just wanted to clarify there before uh, letting Andrea go or letting you go. Somebody's going. Um, well, I'll start by saying like uh, this is definitely important and good. And we talk about getting this ready while you're writing the next book. Uh, just not okay. It's important to take things one step at a time, but also realize that one of those steps isn't sitting there and watching it to see how your book does. Like you can check once in the morning, but, uh, basically a mistake. And this is like a bonus mistake. It's not on my list, but you can do stuff in parallel. Like that's the nice thing about having people sell, having the stores sell your book. So absolutely keep in mind, like the more things you get rolling passively early on, uh, the better it'll be. So yeah, I definitely agree with, with having that stuff out and doing the work for you while you're working on the next thing. And, uh, so for, for my next thing is, uh, feeling compelled to respond to reviews. This is a thing that I've noticed a lot of early people, uh, feel like they need to do frequently. Your first book is something that's lived in your brain for in some form for a really long time. And it's probably very personal to you and very precious to you as a result. And thus it's potentially a very fragile subject to you, the quality of that first book. 
changes are also pretty good that because it's your first book, it's not going to be the best book that you've ever written. I would be very strange if the very first book you write turns out to be the absolute apex of your career. As a result, these recipes combine into the likelihood that uh, you're going to get some bad reviews and it's going to feel bad when you get them. And you know, that's assuming you get any reviews at all. We just we you would just finish talking about making sure you get reviews. If you succeed at doing that, you're gonna get a spread of reviews. Hopefully more good than bad, but there will be some bad ones in there. We've spoken a bit on the show about how it's probably not a bad idea to avoid reading your reviews overall. Just don't read them. Uh if your reviewer score is very low, you should be checking in to make sure there's not one major glaring problem that needs to be solved. But there's not a tremendous amount that you can learn from your reviews. And if you really need to know what your reviewers are saying and you feel fragile about this, get a friend to read them and sort of give you the Reader's Digest version. But before you develop any sort of a review callus and before you learn the dangers uh, and risks of reading reviews, you might feel obliged to not only read your reviews, but to respond to or worse, to confront your reviewers. And this is a very, very bad idea. Uh, for one thing, it's a bad look. It makes you look petty. Even if you feel like you're being diplomatic, the fact that you just showed up and said, hey, that opinion you have, I, as the person who created the book, tell you you are incorrect about your opinion. It's never going to be a good look. Um, it's also a bad use of your time. We talk a lot about on the show about how scalable things are best, stuff that ha you, know, you do once and keeps happening. Going through reading reviews and responding to them is never going to be scalable, and it's not going to have any payback. It's just not a good thing to do. I've also heard, and I don't know how reliable this is, but I've heard of instances where Amazon just didn't take very kindly to a reviewer, uh, an author, talking to people and like responding to reviews. Uh, so if someone disliked your book, that hurts. But your book can't be all things to all people. If someone misinterpreted your book, and is, you, you can try to set them straight, but you will probably fail. They're just as likely to double down on the way they feel. And even if you do change their mind, they had already purchased your book. Unless you have a follow-up that now they're just ravenous to get, uh, all you did was just sort of spend a little time and make them spend a little bit of their time absolute best outcome is you sell one more book to one more person because of this. It's just don't, don't engage with reviews, positive or negative. Answer your emails if you like, but yes, by the way, I did this once. Not only did I respond to a bad review, I responded to a bad review, review with a spoiler for an unreleased book because I felt that would make them want to read that third book. So yeah. Uh, none of the stuff I'm telling you not to do is something that I succeeded in avoiding early in my career. These are all mistakes I actually made. You know, I actually did that as well. And, um, the person did end up reading the next book and they did enjoy that spoiler because they did not like how one of the person acted in an earlier book. And I was like, well, they acted that way because of this, but I didn't post it publicly. <laughs> so, um, um, I definitely, I definitely agree with this. And I'd include beta readers in it because a lot of beta readers are just regular readers and they're going to email you their feedback. And so the temptation to respond is even greater because it's like, Oh, private, nobody's going to know if I respond, but disagreeing with them is pointless and counterproductive. Um, if you regularly dislike feedback, someone's giving you, then don't use them again because they're probably not your target market anyway, or target audience. And it's just, I just, I don't, I think there's so many better things you can do with your time than arguing with somebody because they disliked something trivial or something big in your book. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny. I, I don't see too much of that on Amazon anymore, but I do feel like 10 years ago or so, there's a lot more of it. Uh, and I remember authors doing it. And even if they were very polite and nice, it's sort of like, it looked weird because the review place is not for us. It's for the reader, uh, you know, get other people's opinions on something. I know as a, like a consumer of products or services, when I see it, it's pretty rampant on like Yelp and Google reviews that the business owner will come and reply. And that's a little bit different. Like, is it there sometimes they're addressing a customer service thing, not like, did you not like the, uh, the twist in the third act of the book? But if it's anything other than like super like, Oh, I'm sorry. You uh, didn't have a good experience. Here's our number you can call and we'd like to try to work with you again. I just like, I am so far not touching that company. If it's anything like you were never a customer of us or something like that. Like, no, and yeah, you will get some of these on email too. And that's kind of a more of a question mark on whether you should respond. I used to early on, I used to be like, okay, I, they, these be like, thanks for the feedback and for reading the book. These days, if something's super negative, I just like, I don't have time for that in my life. I just delete. If you email me, I apologize, but I have a super fast trigger delete finger these days. I have old email addresses and I get so much spam and junk and <laughs> pitches for the podcast. And delete, delete. A lot of times the stuff gets deleted just from the subject line. So there's a little heads up. Uh, all right. So let's go into my next one is that, and this is tough if you're planning to do a series. If your first book, the entry point into the series does not start off with a good hook. That's tough. And I feel like every author, you know, or writer says like, oh yeah, duh, of course, of course you have to have a good hook. This has been drilled into us. And yet, I don't know you guys, how you feel when you pick up samples in the, in the Kindle store or wherever you shop, an amazing number of samples that I pick up start with something super boring and lame, made even more boring and lame by the character proceeding to dump backstory about the world and his or her life and explain it's sci-fi, fantasy, especially horrible about this because you got, you know, you built a whole world and you feel like you have to like explain <laughs> as you introduce it. So I've seen agents and, um, you know, writing advice that says never open with a dream with your character waking up from it. And I'm going to take it even farther and say, just never open with your character waking up and probably don't start with them at home at all because hardly anything super ever interesting ever, anything super interesting ever happens at home. Barely ever for you, for your characters. Um, on the other extreme, it's also super confusing to a reader to be dropped in the middle of a battle or any kind of interaction with a bunch of named characters. The reader has to get to know the hero before deciding if they care, if he lives or dies, or what happens on the next page. And that's really hard to do when you've got a bunch of named characters competing for attention on the page early on. I will fully admit that I have not perfected the hook. Sometimes I miss, <laughs> you know, and it's good that the reader's already have faith and we'll give it more of a shot. And that is something you get a little more allowance from once you have a fan base and you have readers that give you more of a shot, but I can definitely look back at the series. It's kind of funny how it works, but the ones where I still think years later, like, Oh yeah, that was a really good hook. That was solid. That um, really introduced the characters and got people interested right away. And lo and behold, those series tended to sell better and, and do better overall than other ones. I look back and I'm like, mm, that probably wasn't really the best POV character to start with or the best situation to start with. 
So, you know, it's just, if you can kind of open with, you know, and it's tough, we always we feel like we have to try so hard with the hook, but if you open with a little bit of mystery, intrigue, or a little bit of conflict, nothing super huge or potentially confusing and save all the backstory. <laughs> I'm talking world building. I'm talking everything, unless it's something super easy to sprinkle in as the action is unfolding. Then, you know, save that for when the reader is more involved and you probably always need less of that than you think you do. Um, so once the reader's hooked, then they're, they'll put up with more of it though. But, um, and I'm, we've talked about this before too, but if you can at all, if it's all possible for the hook, the first couple pages, open with one of your strengths as a writer, whatever your strengths are. You know, if you like, like me, if snappy banter and humor are kind of what you're good at, open with two characters so that you right away, the reader gets a feeling, you know, of what you can do and let your hero show off his or her per personality that way. I, I didn't do this early enough on in my epic fantasy and I have regrets. Sometimes you're like, you're so in tune with like what the genre, what's typical for the genre that you forget, Oh, maybe I should open with like my strengths, even if it's a little atypical for the genre. All right. That's, that's me blabbing about that. Do you guys have any thoughts on hooks? Yeah, I, I would agree with that, especially the opening sometimes opening it, the genre, you know, what the genre expects, it's sometimes good to throw things around a little bit, just to toss things up a bit, because if the rest of the, the book is the way readers, you know, kind of written to market or whatever, that opening genre, opening hook thingy that you're using, that's not quite written to market or to what the readers expect will keep readers going. Um, and then also, I mean, it needs to be on point to the genre. So you don't want to start a romance with a murder, you know, you don't want to start like a, a fantasy or whatever with a makeout scene, you know? So, um, just have it be something that's intriguing to your target audience. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much all the, all, all the thoughts I have right now. <laughs> Uh, this is one where I'm all over the place. Like, I absolutely agree you need a good, look, a good hook. And it's something that I always sort of think about after the book is done. I'm like, oh, I probably should have put more effort into that, <laughs> into that beginning. And as a result, some of my stories begin very, very, like, slowly. Uh, and others uh, begin with a flash forward. And I think my flash forwards or just, you know, action, like starting with action, tend to be the ones that people like the best. And uh, just to be, you know, the controversial one here, this is why I like to use prologues. I know a lot of people hate prologues with good reason, but because a prologue is separate from the rest of the story, it feels a little bit more comfortable, like sort of skipping over some of the introductory stuff to have a fun little nugget of flavor and then launch back into the regular story in chapter one. So a uh, I have done a flash forward to an action scene that actually takes place later in the book. I've also had just a day in the life moment where something went horribly wrong. And then the first chapter was the actual day in the life where things don't go wrong. So there's definitely ways that you can sort of insert interest, even if you feel as though the story needs to start off calmly. Uh, and yeah, but the, as all in any situation where the, the beginning of the story is more interesting, people are going to finish the story more likely. Maybe before we move on, we should give examples like Joe did. I don't know if you have any in mind, Andrea. We weren't like, that wasn't part of our prep. But um, just for myself, like one of the ones that worked well, characters climbing down a cliff to uh, confront a bad guy on, on page one. Uh, another less action-y one was just the, like a salt, he was a colonel in, in his 
fantasy world army getting basically getting called in to like get reamed by the general and sent off to like this horrible duty station and that was one where i really got to show the banter and this irreverent character right off the bat so those were a couple that worked well for me versus like the uh, the epic fantasy i did like some random boy pov character that was a prologue <laughs> so fantasy is the worst but it's so trained that the prologue is a thing to do you know and it's like it wasn't even a character that doesn't come in play for like six chapters but uh, but yeah the ones where you can do your strengths definitely uh tend to be the best i was gonna say mine and i was actually gonna use it as an example when i was giving my feedback but i talk about that book so much that i'm like listeners are probably so sick of it but my shadow hunter formerly shadow prophet book um it starts rather abruptly and i've had people tell me it is the best beginning to a book they've ever read and people tell me that it's it made them not want to read the book so um mostly women don't like the fact that it starts out with a guy pulling a knife out of somebody's chest. <laughs> so women are like, Oh, and the guys like that book is very, has been very popular with men so far. So uh, that one's done really well as an, as a beginning that gets people to either want to read the book or not want to read the book because you know, the rest of the book is kind of that way. It's a little abrupt at times. Um, I can't think of any other examples off the top of my head because <laughs> that was just the one that's most on my mind right now, because it's the one that I've done the most, most stark hook ever, you know? Anyway, I think it's my turn now, right? Unless, yeah, right? <laughs> okay. Please continue on. It is your turn, Andrea. <laughs> Why, thank you, Lindsay. Okay, so my next point is comparing yourself to authors who've either been writing that genre for a long time or have been publishing for a long time. And Lindsay kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier. Um, but comparisons, not comparisonitis is one of the worst plagues in the indie world. And I don't know why, but it is so bad in the indie world, like worse than, I mean, like contractors, you know, I don't see a lot of comparisonitis and we're working with a lot of contractors right now, but probably because our hopes and our dreams and our fears are very public in the indie world. Like we, we re relate really well to other authors when they're like, crap, I'm doing poorly or crap, I'm doing well, or not crap, I'm doing well. Usually that's a good thing, but you know, like it. And so when people are open about it, we all hear about it because we're kind of a tight knit community without being, you know, you know what I mean? I think, but it's just, it's really fun to see when other authors are doing well, but you absolutely cannot and should not compare yourself to them. Um, what, like I said earlier, when you're first starting out, things will go slow. It takes years to learn to market and then learn to write what readers want and then learn how to run a business. And my recommendation, don't do anything that's going to lead you to discouragement. Um, don't compare yourself to others who are more successful. Focus on getting the next book out and do things that uplift and encourage you, even if that means putting your head in the sand for a while. And and one thing that I've found that is encouraging is, you know, like, oh, wow, look, somebody in my genre actually is making money. Okay, that's all I'm going to think about. They made money. I know it works. I'm going to focus on writing my books. Uh, there's no way we can replicate another person's exact success. And we can't even get close enough un unless we have the same number of books in the same genre. So the best thing you can take away from something else's success is like what I was just saying. It's possible to make money as an indie author if you're willing to work hard and you're willing to work smartly, smarter whatever. Uh, the exact way to make that money will change hugely between authors, genres, and business plans, because not everybody has the same business plan or the same ability to, you know, pump books out or whatever. Um, so keep track of tactics and methods that work for others, but only tackle one thing at a time and wait until you have a good way to monitor results. So, you know, 
like actually keeping track of how things are doing. So you're not just throwing everything at everything. And that doesn't usually happen until you have a lot of books in your backlog. Um, trying to replicate someone else's success when you first start out will most likely lead to discouragement and failure. Yeah. And I think the two things you need to keep in mind when you're, when you feel compelled to compare yourself is number one, you're probably, especially if you're just starting off, you're probably not well equipped to determine what is a good comparison. Like what other authors are good to compare to you because I mean, you don't know about the other first release authors because they're on the same situation where you are, where they're not well known. But also, even if you do think that you've found somebody, let's say later in your career and you feel compelled to compare yourself to someone who you know is under similar circumstances in terms of the size of their catalog and the, and the genre that they write in, you still don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Somebody could be successful because they're shoveling 10 times the amount of ad dollars as, as the, you are. And there, you might be making, you know, whatever you might be making one tenth, the actual gross income that they're making, but you're making about the same net because they are putting so much more back into advertising. So just, just keep in mind in any situation where you feel compelled to compare to someone else, unless you have the total picture, you might be, uh, assuming a failure on your part. It's actually just, uh, you know, just a difference in strategy. So yeah, comparing is, is, is not a great way to spend your time. I think this is a perfectly legitimate thing to talk about, but I think, you know, with this subject, this is actually like a mid career thing. I think there's more of a, like you've written 10 books, you bust in your butt. I'm going to try not to swear on this podcast guys, since I got outed last time and you're just like not seeing the same success that some of you, know, people who started at the same time as you or have written fewer books than you. And you're just like, they cannot be working harder than I am. It's not fair. It's supposed to be like, working hard, you're supposed to be rewarded. That's how it is. You know, it, it can't be like talent or luck can't have anything to do with it. And so, but I will say this is not just an indie author thing. I, I remember finding this. I'm going to, okay. You guys have to listen to this. It's on YouTube signing in the Walden books by Parnell Hall. I found it like 10 years ago. It's amazing. He, he It's a song he wrote about like, I forget the name of the really famous mystery author. He can, he's comparing the signings to about how the other author's line goes out the bookstore and he's just like playing with his pen. <laughs> you know, like where are my people? So it's completely normal for everybody in the trad, all of us. I, I do think this whole sales ranking thing on Amazon, the top 100, that makes it really hard because you know, like, especially if you're like 98, you managed to squeak in there, you had a good day or you're checking it as part of your market research. You're like, man, why is that one author always in there with like 10 books? And I, and then you have them on the show and they're like, Oh, I don't spend anything on marketing. And then you really hate them. you know. So it, it's completely normal. And I think as you go on too, if you've had some success, you then start to compare with your past success and you're like, Oh, why isn't this series doing as well as the old one? And I don't know if I have an answer for you. I think Andrea has just said it well, you know, just, you kind of got to focus on doing your own thing and, you know, working on the craft, it, not to say that somebody else, just because they're selling more has better craft. Cause that's not often is not the case. And that's another thing. Just don't read them. If you think it's going to make you better, like if you are the kind of person that can really just appreciate the author's good books, love everybody, good on you. <laughs> you know, congratulations for having that personality. But if you know you're going to read the sample and be like, oh man, their hook sucks. <laughs> they wake up in bed from a dream and it's going to make you bitter because they're, you know, top 100 in the store for the last six months. Maybe just 
read some other stuff. Read other books in your genre. Read, read books by authors who are selling worse than you are if you really want to, you know, whatever tricks you have to do, mental tricks, I think. But um, if it helps, just being aware that we, we totally all struggle with this. Like, I, I, I think the people who say they don't are lying, lying. All right. Uh, I think, are we back to you, Joe? I was looking up Parnell Hall. Yep. Um, awesome. <laughs> I, I will say, I'll say that that self-comparison thing is real. Like if you had a couple of really good years and then you have a couple of not really good years, the amount of questioning that you start to do about yourself is unhealthy, but, uh, that's not a starting problem. That's a mid a mid career problem. So, uh, my next thing is producing a series with non-obvious or non-linear reading order. Among the many strengths of writing a series is the likelihood that readers will funnel through the whole series if you hook them with book one. But something you should learn right away is that every stumbling block you put between your readers and the convenient consumption of your story, no matter how small that stumbling block might be, is a potential place to lose readers. So making sure that your starting point is clearly marked is important. Making sure that the narrative thread is straightforward and easy to identify, uh, that's important. You should be probably limiting prequels and sequels and in-between quills. I have written one of those. Uh, to bonus material and post-series wrap-up stuff and uh, reader magnets and add-ons and stuff like that. You want to keep your main series as clear and linear as possible so that people won't be wondering what book to buy next. Even if you feel as though you're signaling the book to buy next very clearly, if it's not the most obvious in the storefront book to buy next and they stumble over it, uh, they might not pick it up. They might feel like, I don't feel like solving a riddle to figure out what I'm supposed to read. Um, and so, for example, here's something you shouldn't do. Maybe don't write the first book in a trilogy that you plan to be a trilogy and then have the second book you release take place long after the end of the third book that hasn't been released yet and then release the next two and then release a prequel and then release a fourth book. Uh, basically, that's that's how the Book of Deacons series uh, formed. And uh, I don't have a reading order. I can't do a reading order for this that's perfectly linear. I literally have a flow chart. There are books that take place during other books. So don't learn from my mistakes. <laughs> have book one, two, three, four, five, six, and then start playing around with stuff. I'm, I'm over here like laughing pretty hard because that's really awesome. <laughs> um, my individual series are very linear. So, you know, book one through book six or book 10 or book five or whatever, but all of my series, not all of my series, a bunch of my series, like four of them, four or five of them are in the same universe. And readers are like, okay, where am I, which book series should I read first? I'm like, well, what, what genre do you like? Because <laughs> If it's teen epic fantasy, then you should read this one first. But if it's urban fantasy, you should read this one first. If it's just regular fantasy, this one, and that's confusing to readers. Um, I do know that like, they enjoy once they start, they enjoy the fact that the read that they get to the characters for so much longer of a period of time and the magic and the worlds and the systems and stuff like that. But it can be confusing to them. Um, and yeah, I definitely agree with that, that readers, they like even in standalone like books or series made with standalone books, like in romance, they like reading things in the order they're supposed to read things in. Very rarely have I come across somebody who just reads whatever, just because. Yeah, I think we've all kind of made this mistake or made it challenging on our readers to some degree. I've talked about it before. I've had two series, my first two series, both somehow ended up with a novella at 5.5 in between books five and six uh, from like a different POV character. And, you know, half of the, you know, because it won't show up 
I mean, some of the sites are getting better now, 10 years later. Like I think Google Play, Kobo, almost every, you know, even Amazon's now got the series page they have at the bottom, like extended or extra related to the series, but they won't put it in, you know, like 5.5. They won't do that. Uh, on at least right now on Amazon on the series page, just down at the bottom somewhere. So what happens is the readers, half of them miss it. Even if you put like in an afterward, as I, put, I always put the link to the next one for them to go on, you know, half the reader, I think half of the devices don't even show the afterward or the, you know, cause they skip the intro. They always put you on chapter one when you open it up, or at least on my Kindle app. So half the readers don't, you know, they miss it and you think, well, it's just a fun extra, but you end up including things that are important to the series, whether you mean to or not. And then they get referenced again later on in the story and the reader's like, what happened? So I've, I've definitely stopped trying to do that, but it's very hard. The muse, you guys know how the muse is. Like I always seem to end up with at least one side novel, novel or novella or something in the series. And, um, I have not yet done more than like two series in one world that are, that are related sort maybe two and a half if you count my emperor's edge world i have like a duology in there too and i think it's okay to do that but each one should really stand alone and really be a complete thing because I, I i've certainly seen people do the whole universe and they end up with like 10 10 series in the universe and just and i don't know how it works for them but just from the reader perspective i see that you know here's a book that's in the rankings looks interesting and i'm like oh, okay where's where's the first one and you're like, you have to go to their website and find their flow chart, Joe, <laughs> in order to figure out like, and then some of the series that, that you would read first, because they're chronologically first, uh, they don't sound as interesting to you. And you're like, well, am I going to be able to understand this one? And by that time, do they, you know, they had to really want to read your series at that point to give it a shot. So just, it's things to think about, you know. Yeah, Terry Pratchett, it's okay. There were fewer options back then, you know, like, but actually it was tough uh, for people that were in just relying on the bookstores because you'd go in and there'd be Terry Pratchett, like the third one, the eighth one, you know, and big missing ones. But if you can do them, at least for their standalone stories, that was more of an option. But I don't know. Do you guys have any more thoughts on that? I'm just rambling at this point. No more thoughts. Nobody wanted to hear the ramble. All right. So my last one, I guess we each have one more to share. And this is definitely for newer things to think about newer authors, probably your first series. Um, committing to doing a long series before you know how well it's going to sell or continuing to write in a series that nobody is buying with some like notion that, oh, well, later maybe it'll take off. And I'm not saying that can't happen, but, um, you know, and it's kind of tough because you do want to give a new, a new, a series a shot. And if it's your first series, your first book, you know, first couple books, chances are you're going to struggle to get one book one selling. You don't have a mailing list built up yet. You probably don't have a lot of money to spend on advertising. So it, it may take a while, maybe like your fourth or fifth book where you start to get some momentum and, you know, you're running some sales on book one, you're dropping it to 99 cents or free, and that helps the series take off. But if you've kind of done that already and it's not helping, then you don't want to be in a position where, well, I'm on book five of this series and I plan there absolutely have to be 10 books to complete the arc that I've uh, started and people are not going to be happy. So I would recommend, especially for your first series, and I know this is fantasy sci-fi people, we're the kind of the ones most guilty of this. I feel like mystery thriller authors, they all kind of stand alone. So they don't, you know, usually not 
I mean, you might have some threads that are ongoing when to be resolved, but it's easier to end the series, you know, and, and of course romance, unless you set up a whole bunch of like seven sisters that all need to be hooked up or the readers aren't going to be happy. So, but fantasy sci-fi, you really have to be careful with this. I always run into people that have been like building the world for like 10 years and it was their Dungeons and Dragons campaign forever and they know it so well and they've got these 20 books complicated story arc. It's like, okay, first, you know, see if it sells, see if the first one sell, because if you can make yourself to something super long, that's a big, even if you write quickly, it's a really big chunk of your life. And if it's not selling, that whole time you're working on this other one, it's possible you could be working on something else, kind of taking what you've learned from publishing the first series. And that one might be kind of the thing that really takes off. So because of knowing this kind of stuff, wanting to, even though, um, you know, I'm lucky enough not to have a fan base, that, so I'm probably going to sell X amount, even if it's not like a hit with new readers kind of thing. I, you know, I don't, what I tend to do is I plan for like maybe a five book series is sort of like what I commit to. And if I'm having a lot of fun with it after like book three and it's going well, the readers are enjoying it. Maybe I'll expand it. That's what I did last year with uh, my urban fantasy series. I was kind of like committed to, I was six books. I think I had in my mind because they were pretty short. And by the time I was like on five, I was like, Oh, I think I might have to write three more of these. And then I completed it with nine books and I'm thinking spinoff series with, um, a new set of characters, but set in the same world. And I'm like, well, I might have to do one more. There might have to be a honeymoon story with these characters. And, and if it's a series that sells well and can, you know, when you advertise it, it continues to do well, that can make a lot of sense. But, you know, I've had other ones where I'm like, oh, I'm going to commit to like three or five books. And it's like, yeah, I think that's all I'm going to write. Cause these ones are not really doing as well with, um, you know, like the advertising dollars are not really, it's not like a good ROI. You know, you're spending a lot on book one and you know, it's, not really book one's not converting that well with the ads. So that can make it challenging. Even when you have uh, more books, when you have other things that you've seen do much better, you're like, ah, how much time do I want to put in this one? And it can be, you can discouraged too as a, as a writer, if there aren't as many people aren't as excited about it. So that's something to consider. You don't necessarily want to cut something short and leave it dangling, which I have done in the past. I'm much better about this now, but I still have a couple. I have to go back and finish up. And the longer, the more time passes, the tougher it is to go back and kind of put the time into something that you know it wasn't selling that well back then. It's probably still not going to sell very well. So it's harder to put time in that versus you're like, wow, I could do a new series and that's an all new thing that could possibly sell. So I usually, last thing on this, I usually recommend a new author's plan to do a trilogy or like I said, five books, depending on how fast you write. If five books is five years of your time, you may not want to commit to even that much, but like a trilogy. And then if book two is doing well, at that point, you can kind of decide it's going to go longer and start threading in things. I would say it's hard if you do a trilogy. And I think Joe kind of had this experience he's talked about before where like, you really wrapped it up good. And you're like, dang, that thing sold good. <laughs> it sold well. I'm going to do book four and book five, but people aren't looking for it. I had this with my Dragon Blood series too. I had seven books and then it was like two or three years before I did eight and book eight does okay now because new readers find it as they come in, but it's never done as well as the others. Cause it's like book seven feels like the finishing point. So if you're going to extend it, try to think about that a couple ahead of time. So you can start laying in more clues and things to extend it. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I mean, I disagree. I strongly disagree. <laughs> Maybe we need more disagreements in here. Um, but it's, it's hard to tell if something's working. And Lindsay mentioned, if, especially if it's your first series, your first series is probably not going to sell very well, even if you, you know, like my first series was, was six books and by book two and a half, 
you know, by book halfway through two, um, I figured out who I was as a writer. And so book three and on is, you know, it's a lot better and readers absolutely love those books, even if they didn't enjoy the first book as much. And so you just, you don't want to put a whole ton of time into something that is not going to sell well, but you do also need to put in enough time so that you're learning how to write, how to market and how to take what you've learned and apply it to your next series. And so, yeah, I agree. Trilogy, maybe four books, maybe five books. If it's a trilogy, um, learn from what Joe, you know, with his book of Deacon series stuff, you know, find a way, I mean, leave something in there that is not going to be unsatisfying, but could continue the story, you know, just in case. And this is only with fantasy and science fiction. You know, if you're writing like thrillers or mysteries or romance, it's really easy to just do three books because those books are more episodic than fantasy and sci-fi are. Um, but yeah, just plan on it being a trilogy in the beginning until you kind of gauge how well it's going to do, and then take what you've applied and, and write a new series where take what you've applied, take what you've learned, write a new series and apply what you've learned. And, uh, that's seriously my best selling series is the next series that I wrote after that first one. And it just, I really, really worked hard on making sure it, you know, things were laid into place. And I think that really paid off for me. So yes. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, like as Lindsay said, uh, if you're going to continue a series, make that decision before you release the the trilogy that was supposed to be the end of it. Because if it wraps up very nicely, you'll have a huge drop off between three and four. It happened to me. Um, also, if you if you start planning a, a gigantic, let's say a ten book or twenty book or however big series, you literally have this all planned out and you know what's going to be in each book and everything like that. Uh, you may not realize it, but you're probably going to be producing the first few books. They're going to be spread kind of thin. You're holding back a lot of the stuff that that could be very interesting and really help the pace of the book, you're holding back those nuggets for the future and hoping that people are going to get there. So uh, especially if it's your first thing, trying to put out a, something a little bit more concentrated, a little bit more, you know, a, the greatest ideas you could come up with and putting them all in those first few books, I think is far preferable than trying to moderate your pace so that you can maintain it over, over you know, 9, 10, 11 books. So just sort of keep that in mind. Uh, if you've planned something out like that, if you can, if you can digest it and condense it down to a smaller amount, at least for your first release, I think that you'll find that you're going to hold on to readers a lot more. And also, by the way, learning to write more concisely is something that you can always sort of use in the future. Concise writing almost always is better than even really flowery, interesting, drawn out stuff. You'll find that, that, uh, uh, people follow along a lot better when you're able to write tight. Yeah, and just one last thought, like my Colonial Chronicles, I had somebody tell me after I wrote the first book that my that whole series would be a throwaway series, including the first book. And that made me so mad. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I so don't agree with that. And I I think I've said this before, I ended up rewriting that first book multiple times, just because I wanted it to do well. And I rewrote it again, even after it was published. And now it is doing well, but recognize that if you if you decide to put all that time into a long series, you're probably going to have to go back and do some fixes if you want that series to sell well. So, and that's not something we always advise you do anyway, because sometimes it's better to just move on and forget it. But like I put my heart and soul into that first series and it just really hurt to think that people weren't enjoying it. And so for me, it was worth it to go back and financially it was worth it because that series does sell pretty well. Um, now, <laughs> okay. So I've got the next one and this one's my last one. I believe. Yep. It is. Um, okay. So not keeping track of results and throwing money at things that just don't work. 
And I'm going to mention, I'm going to do a taboo thing and I'm going to mention a website that has not worked for me. <laughs> Books Butterfly. Uh, it's a website that works really well for some authors and it has never worked for me. Okay. And when I say never, I've only done it twice because I was like, I, I, did on two different books that are in two different genres and neither of those did well, but I'm, you know, constantly hearing about authors who do really, really well with that website. So I know it does work really well for some people, but I tried it once. And then I tried it again a year, half year and a half later. And I only got about 50 downloads each time to me, this is a failure. And I base that on how much I spent and how other websites do in comparison, how my own marketing efforts are going. So basically how well things go when I'm doing it all myself. Um, because of this, I haven't gone back to them and I won't ever, um, because again, that second time I went back, I was still hearing people say it was doing really, really well. And so I still hear people say that books, butterfly is one of their go-tos, but I still won't go back to them. Um, a new, I mean, a lot of new authors and even those who've been doing this for a long time, but are inexperienced with marketing or impatient or whatever, will throw a ton of money things that don't bring them any sort of ROI. Um, and I think they keep doing it because they actually do get some downloads. It's just, it's a money suck. Like you're like, what? but I got like five downloads out of this thing that cost me 30 bucks. It's not worth it. Um, rather than putting money on something that only works a tiny bit, stop take a step back, figure out if there's something else you could do with that money or with that time that could sell your books better, or see if there's something about your book that maybe makes it so it's not working well for that website. So like if you're working on a, if you're doing a website, um, like, let's see, what's a good example. Um, I can't books, barbarian books, barbarian is mostly five sci-fi and fantasy. And if you try to throw a romance there and if they accept it, it probably won't do so well. So maybe it's not that you're writing badly or that the story's not appealing. It's maybe you're putting it in the wrong vent venues for advertising. Um, and also if you aren't keeping track of results, you'll end up wasting a ton of money. Most people only remember the big outliers. So websites that get them a ton of results like BookBub are ones that fell a hundred percent. Um, there's a lot of websites and methods that are in between that give a positive ROI that should be dismissed or ignored just because you didn't become a bestseller from them. So for example, I love using reading deals. I actually get a positive ROI from them. I don't get a whole ton of money, but they're also not very expensive. And so, um, I keep track of those things and I promise you need to write these things down because later down years down the road, you're not going to remember which ones are, which, unless you write down your results. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, Can I'll... I ask a quick question. Sorry, Joe. Um, what did you say? Reading what Andrew reading deals? deals yeah deals so like, a, like one of those sponsorship sites yeah <laughs> okay well i was just wondering because i didn't hear it so i thought other people might not either and then we'd all forget <laughs> by the time somebody asks when the show goes live okay reading deals um i will add that like obviously money is an important thing that you don't want to be throwing away at stuff that don't work but also um time don't forget like even if something is free even if something is like puts you know writing blog posts um if if you're putting a ton of time and effort into something that's getting you zero response or very little response, that's time you could be spending elsewhere. The only exception I'll give, and even reluctantly, is if you really enjoy writing it uh, or doing it that is. Like, for example, it, Lindsay talks about how uh, it would be daunting to have six or eight short stories to write. And I can write them pretty quickly. I wrote one literally today. I finished it right before the episode. Uh, if I didn't have the Patreon, uh, even though I really like writing these short stories, technically they'd be a bad use for my time unless I found some other thing to use them on. Because uh, even if I was putting if I was putting them up on my blog and just there, um, I probably would be getting very few people who could even find them. So 
like there's a lot of stuff that that uh, feels like you're making you're, you're doing a positive thing but if you're not measuring the actual results or if you are measuring the results and determining they're not doing a positive thing that even if they don't cost you money they still might not be worth it so just keep that in mind right and we should point out that is what's daunting for one person it may not be daunting for another person because like I'm just like, oh my God, six days short stories, that's horrible. But I'm like, oh, wow, I'd totally write a novel, you know, and give that away for free. It's just how my brain works. Like, I find it very challenging to come up with all those short stories. I'm like, I just want to do one story, one big story, and do my thing and have the characters do their thing. But that's a good point about some things, like, even if it could potentially be worthwhile, maybe it's not worth it because it is such a time investment or an energy investment. That's how I kind of feel with like, advertising, anything. I love that on Amazon last year, I, w- I took Mark Dawson's thing, you know, his course. And um, I'm forgot. I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the lady who was teaching the Amazon ads, but she used to work at Amazon, I think. And she, was, she said like, there's really no difference in the auto ads or the ads that have no copy that are just empty versus the ones where you write the copy. I was like, thank you. I hate writing that copy. And I hate having to like A, B test and which copy works better. So now I just run all, they're just blank. It's just the the cover of the book. Uh, so I was really glad to see that data to back up what I was hoping was true. Cause I can ruin it like with a, with my horrible attempt at writing copy. Same with Facebook. I don't do a lot of Facebook ads, not because they aren't great for some people, but I hate writing copy. I don't, you know, I've certainly had things work. Mostly if I give away a 99 cent or not give away, but sell a 99 cent box set, like that seems to do pretty well on Facebook. They like their deals there. I've never had good luck with the BookBub ads, the, not the sponsored deals, but the ones where you pay per million or you pay per click. I just, I'm horrible with graphics. I don't have the time to learn it any better. I mean, I've tried several different times, several different books, and I cannot get a decent uh, ROI on that. So I'm glad that there are people that enjoy that and like tinkering with the graphics and do well. I do think that's a hard one unless you like tinkering with the graphics because like I've tried having my book, my cover designers do like six ads for me to try the different ones, but those guys don't, that's not their thing either. They specialize in the cover design, not necessarily ad copy. So definitely it, you know, especially when you start spending money on like pay-per-click ads at Amazon and stuff, you really need to pay close attention. If the, the least you should do is try to like be spending, not be spending more on book one than your, I mean, not don't spend more on ads than you're making on book one. And then everything else is gravy. If you can get that to work, you know, as far as getting under like a hundred percent uh, cost of whatever, I, cost of sales, a cost <laughs> I'm blanking. I obviously haven't run any for a while. You know, that can be tough, but uh, take the courses if you want, if you're excited about it. But there's so many things you can do now to market your books. I always default back to like doing a perma-free book one or doing bonus things because I feel like I'm better at writing stories than I am at any of the marketing stuff. So I'm happy to put my stories out there for free because they do way better at selling my series than, you know, as far as long as I can get a good cover, which I don't have to design. So it doesn't rely on my abilities as an artist uh, that that can kind of really, that's my favorite way to sell. And that's why, because I, you know, despite us doing the marketing podcast, I've never felt like I'm good at any of that writing copy, copywriting kind of stuff. All right. I think, sorry, I pass it to Joe. (laughs) One more thing here. Um, Something you should be worried about, be wary about is uh, associating your author brand too closely with a single book or series. If you're starting your career or hoping to, presumably you will be writing more than one book. 
And if you're lucky, you'll be even writing more than one series. So when you start establishing yourself on the internet, you want your site, your social media, all of the other things that you hope people will find you with to communicate uh, your name or the pen name you've chosen rather than the name of your book or your series. It'll be clearer in the long run because you won't have to keep on updating information to the most recent thing. Um, It'll keep you from having to divide your marketing attentions between a lot of different sites if you decide that you want to do, say, one per series or even one for, per book. Uh, and if you start off with a dud, it will keep that albatross from hanging around your neck for your entire career. Uh, there's also, and there's, Here's a, a greater person, a greater possibility that if you use your name, that it will be unique. Um, if you, if you, if you use the title of your book, uh, or the title of your series, it's more likely in the long run for that to show up in some other way, shape or form, unless you've done a lot of effort to make sure that the title of your series or book are entirely unique. But then you run the issue of if they're completely unique, as in say a made up word, then you have a problem there too. So, your name is your name and, and therefore just try to focus on using that. Uh, and w since we're on the subject of unique, one, one other little bonus thing. Um, if you do say associate your, your email address and your author site with the name of your first book, like the book of Deacon, um, make sure that that's the only book of Deacon there is, as opposed to, for example, uh, the autobiography of a football player named Deacon Jones, which also is called the book of Deacon and gave me SEO problems for the first four years of my career. <laughs> so there's lots of mistakes you can make if you associate your entire brand with the first book you released. Yeah, this is something I did. Uh, it was, I mean, I didn't do my entire brand because I was with a publisher and they made me create a website that was based on my name. But then there was like this little fad that people went through in a, like 2011 where they're like, you should be, you should grab websites that are based on the names of your books. And so I started doing that and I was like, Oh, so many freaking domains. I was just like, and like most of them are obsolete now because I changed titles of books and I changed names of series or I moved and forgot to move them to a new, you know, hoster. I just hoster. <laughs> new, whatever they're called. And I just honestly just keep things simple. And in, especially when you're first starting out, there's enough things, there's enough moving parts, just, just do your name. And then, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, screw the rest. There you go. I said it. <laughs> your name or your pen name, whatever you're going to write under forever. It is tough when your name is common. I always feel for people like I feel, I mean, it's tough too, if your name is hard to spell, but at least like my last name, well, my first name and my last name get misspelled a lot, but at least after you've been out there for a while and enough people like find your site, Google is smart enough to like get pretty close. If it's pretty close, they'll find you. But yeah. And it's funny because when you're a lot of times when you're starting out, you're not really even imagining that you would write more than one series. Like 10 years ago, I never would have thought of like 80 books and the pen name with two series and myself like 10 series and however many other stuff. So you just, you never know what the future will hold. But if you want to be a career, if you dream of doing this for a full, you know, for your living, for a career, being a career author, you're going to have to assume that probably at some point you're going to start a second series. Unless you're one of those people doing cozy cat mysteries or mysteries where you have to use every letter of the alphabet that could keep you going for a while. <laughs> But, you know, most of us are going to end up writing more than one series and you'll get faster too. like, 
that's the thing. Most of us take like what five five years to get our first book out there because by the time you're workshopping everything, by the time you scrap it because you realize, oh, that book didn't even really work, so I'm just gonna write another one with this, you know, change everything. Uh, you know, it takes a while, but yeah, I agree. Use your name. Uh, any last thoughts, guys? I think we've been chatting for an hour, so this should be a good place to end it. No last thoughts. We all tired. We record these at night. Maybe that's a mistake. I don't know. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. Is that our website? My brain is going on a little vacation here. Also, um, I'll put the link in the show notes. But Signing in the Walden Books by um, Parnell Hall. It's hilarious. You should go. Go check it out if you haven't. And And you'll know that even like solid midless authors who have been writing forever and had success are like super bitter inside about the success of others. So you'll be good. It's okay. You have good company. Thanks everyone. Have a good week. See you later. So long everybody.